Brothers are great, sometimes. Brotherly love is a powerful thing, fraternal love, right? Beginning between biological brothers, but then extended out to kin and to countrymen. That kind of love between men is foundational. The world, it's not an over-exaggeration to put it this way, the whole world, by which I mean families and churches and societies, those three great estates that our Lord has instituted, Those three estates are held together by the bonds of brotherly love. By fraternal love, I don't mean lodges like the moose or the elk or whoever. And I certainly don't mean Alpha, Phi, Sigma or whatever the other Greek fraternities are. That's a different kind of love altogether. It's not the kind of love that builds society up. I mean the kind of love that David and Jonathan Shared. I mean the kind of love between brothers and fathers and sons and men in a congregation and men in a city that leads them to great things, that leads them to duty and to honor and to sacrifice. Without that love, without that love of the brothers, families crumble, societies decay, and churches hollow out. Much of the weakness in our times, the weakness of these three estates, the weaknesses that we see and experience in the world around us, maybe in our own families, and even to some extent in our own congregations, those weaknesses go back to a loss of the brotherhood. And so instead of building one another up in love, brothers ignore one another. They show jealousy or anger Or maybe worst of all, indifference. I don't care about you. Who are you to me? Today we've heard about a fraternity torn apart. Instead of the power of brotherly love, today we've heard about the power of brotherly anger, of brotherly animosity. Maybe you've experienced something of that in your own family. Parents joke about it a little bit anyways when they speak of sibling rivalries, right? Well, there's no greater sibling rivalry than Cain and Abel. What could drive a brother to such an extreme against another one? I mean, we all know, right, of course, that brothers fight hard, right? It's one thing to fight against somebody who's your neighbor down the street. When I was a kid, if we lost in football in the street, there'd be a little bit of a brawl afterwards. But that was nothing like the fights that we had with our own brothers, Right? When you fight with your own brothers, it seems like the anger is hotter. It burns more intensely. But still, this seems out of control. This seems almost so far beyond the pale of what's possible, right? That's, that a brother would kill his own brother. It seems to put a distance between us and this story of Cain and Abel. It almost makes us think there's really nothing there for us to learn from. But of course, we know that all of Scripture is written for our learning. Of course, we hold that all of these things are written down to teach us, to instruct and inform us. And so I want you this morning to think of it not simply as a story about two brothers fighting, but I want you to see the story of Cain and Abel as the difference between those who have God's favor, Abel, and those who do not. There is a great warning in this story about what happens when the favor of the Lord is withdrawn, when we lose, if we were to lose, the favor of the Lord. You can see that in what happens with Cain. 
But there is also a great encouragement in Abel. It's implicit, it's unspoken, and I'll come back to it at the end. But there is a wonderful encouragement for those who have God's favor, like Abel. Now, it's clear that there's a difference between these two brothers, isn't there? And it has something to do with their offerings. That's what God's word points out for us. Both of them, both of them knew that they ought to worship the Lord. They knew that they ought to bring him some kind of offering. They have that in common. It was only by God's power they knew, and it was only by God's blessing they knew that the fields produced and the flocks increased. At an even deeper level, both of these sons, both of these brothers knew that the Lord God was greatly to be praised. And so they brought offerings. They brought offerings from the work of their hands. But what was different about those offerings? And what do those offerings show about the offerers? Remember that. What do their offerings show about the offerers? That's the key point. See, it's not so simple as to say, well, God likes animals and he doesn't like vegetables, right? God likes meat and not vegetables. That's why he liked Abel, who offered a sheep, and he didn't have regard for Cain, who just brought some of the produce of the land. It's not that simple. After all, Psalm 50 puts it quite powerfully. Every beast of the forest is mine, declares the Lord. The cattle on a thousand hills. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? The answer, of course, is no. God is not a carnivore any more than he is an herbivore. God does not require blood. God does not require animals. God is not bought off by something that he likes over something else. No one, Abel included, can give God something he needs, for God has no needs. He lacks nothing. He is perfect. He doesn't need a single penny from me, nor does he need a thousand dollars from you. His favor is not something to be bought and sold on the marketplace. But, but their offerings do show a difference in the heart of the offerers. So note well what the difference in Cain and Abel's offering shows about themselves. The way we worship does this. The way that we worship shows something about what we believe. How you worship, we might put it this way, is a confession of what you believe. And what we see in Cain and Abel are two very different confessions, two very different faiths. Abel, it says, offered the first fruits of his flock. And Cain, well, he just brought some part of his produce. You know throughout God's word that the first fruits of the harvest or of the flock or even of children stand as a symbol for the strongest, the very best. So when it says that Abel offered to God the very best, the first fruits and their fat portions, you can think of it this way. Abel brought the very best part of what he had. Cain, on the other hand, treated his offering, his worship, as an afterthought. If we were to put it in our own terms, it would be like this. You get your check from your employer, and you take it home, and Abel would have taken that first part of his check, and before he even put it in the bank, he would have written his own check, put it in the offering envelope, and put it in his pocket and said, I can't wait to go into the house of the Lord and to offer back to God a confession of my trust in him, an offering of praise and thanksgiving. Cain, on the other hand, got his check in the mail, 
cashed it in the bank, went out and spent as much as he could, and then when it was time for church, he felt in his pocket and said, oh, I've got a couple of quarters here. I guess I'll throw these in the plate. You see the difference between those two things? For Abel, God was the priority. God took precedence over everything else. For Cain, God was an obligation. God was maybe an afterthought. Well, I guess Abel's bringing some offerings, so I guess I better bring something. I don't want to go empty-handed. I'll just bring some part from my produce. What do their offerings show about the difference between these offerers? It shows the difference between a, between a living faith, a true trust in the Lord, and a dead kind of faith. That's the difference in their offerings. The book of Hebrews puts it this way. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. That's the difference between Cain and Abel. It's the difference between those who have God's favor and those who don't. It's the difference between the Pharisee who boasted of himself and exalted in himself and the tax collector who humbled himself before the Lord and trusted in his mercy. Those who are like Abel, those who trust in the Lord, who humble themselves before him, who put God as the priority, have his favor. And those who don't, who treat God as an afterthought or as an obligation or as someone we can buy off, you know, I scratch his back and he scratches mine, do not have God's favor. And that makes all the difference in the world. There's another difference that I should point out, though. I said earlier it's not simply that God likes animals more than he likes plants. It's not simply that. But there is a key difference in the offering of an animal compared to the offering of a plant. Animal sacrifice has this key difference than crops, and it is this, that when you offer an animal, you are offering a living being. And while we're not given all the details of what kind of ceremonies Abel observed, it's clear that later in Scripture, the blood of the animals, perhaps just like the later sacrifices of the temple, the blood of the animals is a confession that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. We don't know everything that was on Abel's mind. Scripture doesn't have a long, drawn-out prayer of what Abel was doing there. But you can see by his sacrifice that his faith, his faith was in this, that one day there would be a sacrifice that would cleanse the world. One day there would be not the offering of the blood of an animal, but that one day there would be the offering of the firstborn of God, that the Son of God would shed his blood, and that through his blood, the sins of the world would be taken away. The blood of that firstborn of Abel's flock points ahead to the blood of the only begotten Son of God, that sacrifice which secures the Father's good pleasure for all who trust in him. In Cain, you can see the tragic and awful ter- in tragic and awful terms the difference it makes having God's favor or not. It's not purely some private thing, right, between me and Jesus, and it doesn't affect any other part of my life, as if my religion could be compartmentalized, right, to like one hour on a Sunday morning, and it never had anything to do with the rest of my life. You can see what happens to those who do not have God's favor. 
I want you to think of it this morning in terms of conscience. Now, that's actually kind of a hard word to define. Where is your conscience? If you go into the doctor and you get an MRI or a CAT scan, can you point to some part of your body and say, aha, there it is, right between my stomach and my kidneys? Conscience, your conscience is not an organ in your body, but it is something that God has given to each of us. It is a spiritual aptitude, an ability to discern between good and evil. And though we can't necessarily quite define it, we can know how it functions. You know how your function works. It works in two ways, either by accusing you or by approving of you. We're probably more familiar with the accusing conscience, right? We all have had that experience of doing something we know we shouldn't do, whether it's a a seemingly small and insignificant thing like eating a cookie when you're not supposed to or something much, much worse. You go to bed that night and you feel in your conscience not just a bad feeling but the accusation of God's law that you have sinned that you have not done what you ought to have done, or you have done what you should not have done. And that guilt, that accusation, is your conscience speaking to you. It is God testifying to you through your conscience that you do not have his favor. You also probably know the approving conscience, although maybe not quite as dramatically. When you have a hard day's work, when you do a good job, when you do what God has called you to do, it feels good, doesn't it? There is a good reinforcement that comes from doing the things that you're supposed to do. You know what that is? It's God testifying to you in your conscience that you have his favor, that you have his approval. Now, Cain did not have an approving conscience. He had an accusing one. And so you hear what happened to him. Cain was very angry and scripture says his whole face fell. He's like a brooding teenager, right? He's like that surly kid on Saturday morning who won't do his chores and who won't do anything mom and dad say and who just wants to go back to bed. I was never like that, so I'm not speaking of myself. That's how Cain was with this accusing conscience. Sin, God said, is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God called Cain back to faith in him. He called him to repent and turn to the Lord and have that accusing conscience be relieved by God's favor. But Cain didn't want anything to do with that. Cain wanted to handle that accusing conscience on his own terms. Apart from faith, apart from repentance and faith in the Lord, there is no approval before God. Instead, there is a world of sinful beasts, Scripture says, just waiting to pounce on you. And in the rest of the reading, you can hear the awful outcome of what happens to those who reject the testimony of God in their conscience and decide, I can handle it by myself. Thank you very much. Why was Cain so angry at Abel? It was his own fault, wasn't it? It was his own most grievous fault that he didn't have God's favor. But... And here is where Cain serves as a moving example for each of you. Cain did not want to listen to the testimony of his guilty conscience. He wanted to silence it on his own terms, to deal with it in his own way. 
Maybe you know how that goes. When you see someone else who's done what's right, and you know you're in the wrong, you think, if only my brother would stop cleaning up the bedroom, if he would just stop being such a goody two-shoes, then I wouldn't look so bad. Right? If only the employee of the month wasn't such a good employee, I wouldn't look like such a bad one. Who knows how long Cain brooded over those thoughts? Who knows how many days and nights passed of Cain plotting in his heart how he'd like to silence his brother? If only my brother would stop. How sadly common this is. Not the killing of brothers, but attempting to silence a guilty conscience apart from the Lord's given means. How many How many souls have been destroyed like Cain? How many lives have been given over to anger and bitterness and hatred? How many, how many have perished apart from God's favor? How many have died in their sins, brooding in anger? How many have spurned the warning of the Lord and made a home for sin, thinking it like a little pet instead of a hostile enemy? You can see that all around you, can't you? So many have no regard for the Lord God or his approval. They suppose it doesn't matter how they stand before him. For some, it's just like Cain, right? The Lord is an afterthought. His commands, his promises, the company of his house, and his worship, well, it can wait. I've got more important things. God will have to fit in to my time. But for others, it's even worse. The Lord isn't even an afterthought. He's a no thought at all. God's countenance does not smile down on such souls any more than it did on Cain's offering. And whether they will admit it or not, their own consciences bear witness to them, bear testimony, accusing them. Sin crouches at their doorstep and desires to devour them. But like Cain, they don't want to listen. Not to the Spirit's testimony in their conscience, not to the Spirit preaching from the pulpit, not to the Spirit pleading from their friends' mouths. And what happens as a result? What happens when you don't have God's approval on your life? You go looking for it somewhere else. You go looking for it somewhere else. In some cases, it might break out in violent actions against the righteous. Martyrdom is still a common thing in our world, though not in our country. More often, it's not violent actions, but violent words. People lash out at Christians, right? Mocking them, belittling them, scoffing at their beliefs. You believe in that old story? Even more frequently than actions or words, it is the thoughts of the heart that strike out in anger and bitterness against those who, like Cain, have God's favor and so remind the guilty of what they do not have. Without God's approval, Without his voice calming our conscience, without the forgiveness of sins applied to us, without his justification, we will look for it somewhere else. And you can see how busy people are trying to find approval somewhere else, looking to some other authority, becoming obsessed with some other set of rules by which they can prove just how righteous they are. Look at how people pay such close attention to things that we used to give no attention to. Are you vaccinated or not? Do you wear a mask or not? Why have those things become such lightning rods? It is because people do not have the favor of God. They do not know the peace that comes from God's forgiveness of sins, and so they look for approval from some other authority somewhere else. It might not just be that, right? That's just one example. 
But people are busy, busy trying to soothe their conscience by any means necessary except the one thing that brings peace. It is no surprise to me. It's no surprise to me that as our society drifts further and further from the Lord and the delivery of his favor in word and sacrament, it becomes an angrier and angrier place. That as people continue to absent themselves from the fellowship of the church and find their approval somewhere else, they will be ramped up in anger and bitterness. But you know a different justification, don't you? You know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. You have a justification that is far better than the CDC's stamp of approval. You have a justification from heaven. You have God's approval on your life. You have it delivered to you in his word, sealed on your lips in the Holy Communion. You have his approval marked on your head in holy baptism. That is a far better thing. That is a thing that sets you free sets you free from seeking the approval of all the other things in the world. And because of that, you are free, free from the crouching enemy. For like Abel, you have the Lord on your side. The canes of the world may oppose you, but there is one who hears your prayers. Cain's question was, am I my brother's keeper? He rejected that role. But the Lord is one who sticks closer than any brother. The Lord is one who vindicates those who he loves. If you have God's favor, then you have this hope that he will take care of you, that he will provide for you, and that those who oppose you, those who persecute you and belittle you and mock you and scorn you, will not finally win the day. For the Lord is on your side as a mighty warrior. The Lord is on your side as a brother. And his brotherly love never goes to brotherly anger. To him be the glory now and always. Amen.